Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookin brought to you by Explore Booksellers, Aspen, Colorado's trusted community bookstore. Wherever you are in the world, it is always good to explore. My guest today is Adam Bessie. He teaches community college English in the San Francisco Bay Area and writes comics that have appeared in The New Yorker, The Boston Globe, The LA Times, and many other venues. His new book, with illustrations provided by Peter Glanting, is Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey, which is published by our friends at Seven Stories Press and The Censored Press. Adam, welcome to the program. Oh, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, it's an honor to have you here. And first, Adam, uh, before we dive into your book, even though this is a question somewhat related to your book, I want to ask, uh, how are you doing? How's your health? Well, I, I have been on, I have a brain tumor, which is one of the threads in the book, even though it's called a teacher's journey. Mm-hmm. Teachers are people, yes, right? We often forget that, which is one of the main points of my book. Teachers are parents, they're partners. And in this case, I'm both of those. I'm also a cancer patient, and I've had a brain tumor since 2009. So that is about 14 years. Mm -hmm. I've been on multiple treatments. And the one that I'm on now, uh, when I got on it, it's like it just had come out of trials. And Mm -hmm. so I have been stable for almost 18 months now, which is uh, just I'm really grateful for that. Absolutely. Very good. And geez, 2009, I was living in the Bay Area, managing a bookstore there in 2009. Oh, Uh, wow. Which one? I probably went to it. I was managing the very large uh, Borders in Union Square right there at the corner of Post and Powell. Yeah, a big four floor uh, store. And now um, all of the booksellers who I worked with and managed have dispersed out to the indies in the areas. They're all at uh, Books, Inc., uh, etc., all over the place. So um we may have run into each other, Adam, who knows? Uh, but let's now dive into this excellent book, Going Remote Properly. This book, Adam, is mostly about the state of education in the COVID era as you lived it. Uh, can you talk about the opening of your book and how going back to campus was like regaining feeling in an arm or a leg that has fallen asleep? Yeah, so it's interesting because, you know, the whole story of the pandemic has been one of sort of being raptured up to the cloud mm-hmm. in these Zoom bubbles, in the cloud college, which I call it. And then the other side of it is this return. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people, when this started, said, oh, we're going to only be gone for a couple of weeks. Um, and obviously it took a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And in my particular college, people are still returning and haven't really come back from the cloud. So Mm -hmm. I found it ironic that I already had an experience returning before everybody else went through together this experience of exiting and returning. Mm -hmm. So at the opening of the book, you'll find me walking from my Subaru Mm -hmm. down onto campus and the campus is vibrant. This is January of 2020, um, you know, where COVID probably was already everywhere but we didn't know it and it's a really for me it's a very unique moment because I had been off campus for the previous about well I'd been sort of part-time in the spring because I'd been on a a pretty intense uh, chemotherapy medication and then during the summer and fall I was on sabbatical 
which ostensibly was to write a memoir about living with the brain tumor and teaching and being a parent, mm-hmm. but also was to just deal with the side effects of, of the cancer treatment. And so during that time away, I got to do a lot of writing, but also I was like, am I ever going to be able to come back to campus again? Mm-hmm. And if I do come back to campus, will I be in one piece? Will I be like the teacher I was before? Mm-hmm. And I've been teaching for some context since 2002. I started, a, I've always taught in public institutions. I started as a substitute teacher first. Um, my first class ever was high school French. And I spoke no French whatsoever. Mm-hmm. I briefly taught high school and then moved to community college and immediately fell in love with it. And the college I'm at now DVC, where I'm talking to you, Diablo Valley College, which is in the Bay Area. I'm in my office right now talking to you. I've been here since uh, 2006. Mm. And uh, as soon as I came on the campus the first time, and you'll see this in the book, it's an enormous campus, maybe 20,000 students, uh, not all on campus at the same time. It's really vibrant. We're in the Bay Area, so we have a profound diversity of students from all walks of life, all ages. Like this semester, for example, I have a 17-year-old high school student, and I have a 55-year-old returning student, all Mm. in the same space. Mm. I've got veterans. I've got folks from Singapore, Indonesia, Norway. And from the beginning on this campus, I just fell in love with this multicultural multi-generational community project where anybody that stepped on here could get educated. And so when I left because of the cancer treatment before the book starts, I really had felt like, a you know, this had been my home, my home away from home, this campus, and that a part of me had been sort of cut off. And when I was coming back, I felt like an imposter almost, like I was wearing the Adam Bessie suit, but I wasn't really who I was. And that's depicted in the book as well in a particularly poignant scene uh, that takes place on Halloween day a number of years ago where uh, students had all dressed up in my same outfit, Mm -hmm. which I have this sort of uh, kind of British flat cap and suit and I'm kind of rumpled. So they all walked in on Halloween that day in this sort of cartoonish Bessie version And when I'm coming into campus again, returning to campus after being away and being on treatment, I looked like myself. Maybe I was a bit skinnier from the treatment, but I was like, am I still here? Mm. I have returned, but have I returned? And that's sort of, that's in a way is obviously foreshadowing where the rest of the world is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Adam. Um, you mentioned you were on sabbatical officially, so you could write about, um, you know, your process of of battling your brain tumor. Um, what is it like to be dealing with something like uh, your tumor during a pandemic? And what I mean is, what is it like to be going through this major health crisis when everyone else in the world felt like they were going through an unrelated major health crisis as well? That's a wonderful question. And I had, I'd say, different phases of the pandemic. I had different feelings about it. Mm-hmm. So stage one, when the pandemic starts, it's depicted in the book, mm-hmm. is terror because mm-hmm. I had to go to my standard MRI. Mm-hmm. 
mm -hmm. uh, magnetic resonant imaging. And, and there's a depiction of that in the book. And it feels like, to me, like you're being sucked inside of a robot or something. Mm -hmm. And I've done it many, many times, but never during a pandemic. And I had to go. I didn't want to go because that's where the COVID patients were in the hospital. Mm -hmm. And so I, I remember our talking with the doctor, like, can we put this off? Do I have to go now? That it was clear, like, I didn't have a choice. I really needed to do it. And I just remember getting in there and then asking them, did they wipe down the machines and all that stuff. And in the book, I talk about being in the machine. It felt like being a lockdown inside of a lockdown. Mm -hmm. So at this point in California, we were still in lockdown. And then they put me into the MRI machine where they literally lock your head down. And you'll see that in the book. And you're strapped in and you're inside of this sarcophagal tube. And so that was kind of stage one of this, like, you know, am I going to make it out of the pandemic? And, and again, I think uh, in a way, I had a sense of solidarity with other people. I had this feeling of I'm terrified for my own health, uh, but maybe other people will now understand what it's like to have this this threat of illness. Mm -hmm. And so there's a term that uh, I use from Susan Sontag, the famous philosopher. I read her book, Illness as Metaphor, about her own cancer journey many years before I was diagnosed with cancer. And in that work, she opens with this phrase that all of us, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing poorly, but we have a passport um, between the kingdoms of the well and the ill. And all of us are obliged at some point in time to visit the kingdom of the ill. Mm -hmm. My life has been, since I was diagnosed with a brain tumor, living between those worlds and having to use that passport constantly. And then one of the main frustrations I've had through the years, and talk to most folks that have any chronic or serious illness, which is invisible, and they would agree is that, that most folks just can't understand, that haven't been through it, just don't understand the suffocation of that world, the rigidity, the stress of that world, mm. cancer world, or whatever world you're in. And I felt like this would be an opportunity that maybe with all of us in this space, we would have more empathy for cancer survivors and people with chronic illness. And also a lot of the measures that, that were being taken out of service or public health were asking people to consider those that were immunocompromised or were weak, weaker. And so I said, oh, this is a moment that maybe our culture will, in this crisis, develop a, a less of a cutthroat attitude towards healthcare and towards care of people, and we'll have more of an empathic attitude. That was stage one. Mm -hmm. However, as we saw, it became just a horrible battle, especially within the schools, over vaccines and over masks and and the legacy of that i i don't i don't know that 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 empathy that i hope for at this point in time uh still exists mm -hmm. obviously this book um i wrote it as as a means to um not get involved in any of those debates about closings and opening the mass that's not that's for another person to write about but for me, it was to cut past some of these dehumanizing sort of stereotypes about the immunocompromised, about teachers, and have maybe try to make a push for that first stage where there was this possibility for a greater empathy that would lead to medical systems, 
and lead to school systems and other systems that are built more on empathy and less off of um, contempt, contempt and misunderstanding. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Adam. Um, you write that our education system is built like a waterway through which students are supposed to flow. Can you elaborate on this concept for our listeners? And is this system where education is like a waterway a good thing or a bad thing? That is a, a great question. And that observation that that the system is like a waterway is not intended to be a positive or a negative, but more of a like a description of, of how having worked in public education my whole adult life, I see it. So what I mean by this metaphor of it being a waterway is that a waterway is is construct is a constructed thing. It's not a river. A waterway is a man-made or person-made thing, like an aqueduct that's intended to take the liquid from one place to another. And along the way, there will be perhaps various, um, I don't know anything about waterways specifically, if I knew more, the various chambers or barriers that direct the water in that way. Mm -hmm. So when you look at the educational system that we have, the design of it is standardized and you move from K through 12, some folks are, they start to get tracked into different waterways at a certain point of time. You take certain testing and maybe by the time you are 13 or 14, you're on a waterway that moves to college, or maybe you're on the workway waterway. You're being explicitly or implicitly moved one way or another. And despite our culture's, um, you know, values about uh, meritocracy and things of that nature, very early on, people are being explicitly moved into certain tracks or waterways. Mm -hmm. The thing that's amazing about community college, again, is unlike, you know, I went to Davis, that was my first college experience, I had to get in there. There was a siphoning system that said, you can come here, you can't go there, right? Mm -hmm. Community college is just open and that everyone can come, right? That said, right, some people, there's open access, but there's a lot of invisible barriers that people don't see. So some students that are coming from very affluent, well-resourced areas, and they're living at home with two parents that have money, and they have a safe, comfortable space, that person is going to come into community college no matter what grades they had, no matter how they did, and they're going to have less obstacles and be able to flow through and then maybe overcome that, that barrier to get into Davis or Berkeley or wherever they want to go. Hmm. Community In a community college, we also, you know, have students that are profoundly disabled or students that come from other countries. We have refugees that even though they are here, they have lots of different boundaries, language, ability. And the community college attempts to rectify that to get people through, through many services like disabled student services, ESL programs, all these things. So the idea of community college in the cultural mythology, there's kind of two tracks that I see. One track is was promulgated to switch metaphors, if I can, uh, by Obama and others, that community college is an engine of success is that this is a place that takes anybody and then it can create meritocracy. Is that student that maybe dropped out of high school because they had a difficult upbringing, they can come here and they can change their lives around. 
And I can tell you, I have seen that time and again. I have seen students come from very difficult circumstances and succeed. That does exist. But on the other hand, we do see the system replicating the same problems that happened previously, even though ostensibly the system is open to everybody. The barriers of poverty, of racism, of ableism, all of those still exist here. And the challenge is in this, and as I mentioned earlier, sort of, and you'll see this in the book, in the chapter that's focused on the uprising around George Floyd and what are the implications for educators. Hmm. The community college system, I didn't learn this until after George Floyd's murder, was originally founded on theories of eugenics. Now that seems very weird, you'll have to read the book, but the idea is to create a system that would permit more, especially white students to flow into the system, but then cut out students that might not be Harvard material or Berkeley material. So the origins of the community college system, I had thought, and I'd been teaching a long time, I had thought were about uplifting the marginalized, but actually the original origins were to make sure that only quality candidates got in. So at this particular point in time, and this is another reason this book to me is so important at this moment, we still have that tension. We have a tension between being this waterway that attempts to let everybody in and have a chance to go where they want to go, and also a system that just replicates the same structural barriers that prevent people from moving on. And so really it's a tension between moving towards the democratic meritocracy that is the primary value that brought me to college and towards a system that just acknowledges privilege and perpetuates privilege. Yeah, thank you so much for that answer, uh, Adam. There is a scene in your book where a student describes a film as, quote, that old movie, The Matrix, end quote. Um, is The Matrix an old film? I still feel like it's very, very relevant, but I, perhaps I'm dating myself. Well, what's great about being a teacher and what I love about it, and I have loved about it, is that you really get, at least I do, the way I design assignments, and many teachers do, really create a space for students to bring themselves into the class. That's what I talk about in the second chapter about the power in the classroom, which is a phrase that comes from civil rights hero and educator Bob Moses. Mm -hmm. And the power of the classroom is when you as the teacher are creating spaces and structures that permit the students to fully invest themselves in what's happening. And some days it works and some doesn't. And what's recorded in the book in this moment where the students are in my science fiction fantasy course are talking about the matrix, I get to really hear like their cultural references. And it does make me, now I'm in my forties, I was starting as a teacher in my twenties and was cool. And now I'm in my forties I, you know, I'm not as cool. And I'm realizing a lot of these references that I thought were up to date are not up to date. Mm -hmm. And so that's what I love about it is that that a really great classroom is one in which the students have the power and they end up teaching me. Now, yes, the matrix in terms of a fake reality uh, in which humans are the batteries definitely seems relevant, especially in light of now chat GPT and AI. Mm -hmm. Um which I allude to in the book where there's one scene in which I say, maybe there'll be a point in the future in which I'm no longer needed, just my data. Hmm. And in fact, I wrote a comic 12 years ago called Automated Teaching Machine about teachers being replaced by robots. 
sort of tongue in cheek, but now I'm realizing I shouldn't have been joking about that. Mm-hmm. And so I do think more and more, and this is kind of a, a maybe sub theme of the book, is a lot of this science fiction literature like The Matrix, or I reference uh, Octavia Butler's, a bunch of her work like Speech Sounds, which is an apocalyptic work. A lot of that work has, this literature has a lot to offer us in this moment to understand how to deal with uh, many of the technological quandaries that are facing us, especially in educational and other spaces. Absolutely. Uh, Adam, we're going to come back to some of this after the break. But first, listeners, we are going to pause here for a word from our sponsors. Then I will be right back with Adam Bessie. The Book and Podcast would like to thank Libro.fm Audiobooks for their sponsorship. Libro.fm has the same audiobooks at the same prices as their major competitor. You know the name. But instead of supporting the Big River, you'll be supporting your favorite neighborhood bookstores. Please head on over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, explore booksellers in the process. I'm back with Adam Bessie, author of Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey, which is published by our friends at Seven Stories Press and the Censored Press. Um, Adam, I'm going to ask you a couple of questions about the um, the answer you just gave me. First of all, um, I do want to talk about chat GPT and um, AI for a moment as I was discussing uh, with my my seven-year-old son Van's principal at his school as I was preparing for this uh, interview. That was something that he was very concerned about. Um, so when a technology like this emerges, um, as a teacher, do you see it as a threat, like students are just going to be plagiarizing, et cetera? Or do you take the opportunity to say, here's this new technology that I need to teach them how to harness and utilize? I, I think like all technology, it's both. Mm-hmm. And, and I have been dealing with students using it to cheat. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've also played with it a lot mm-hmm. and find it very interesting. And I've invited students in to play with it together and for us to talk about how it might be useful or not. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I want it, like I want us to think about sort of chat GPT in a couple different ways if we can. So number one, there is the challenge of the threat of students simply replacing their writing process, which writing is a process, it's not just a product. Mm-hmm. And ChatGPT creates the product as efficiently as possible. I would say from the viewpoint of how a lot of schooling works, it is a perfect product mm-hmm. because schooling, American schooling and much Western schooling is built on a factory model and efficiency is king. So if efficiency is the most important part of education to efficiently get work done, then a program that does the work for you would be, uh, if I were a student, I'd say, oh, I have 18 things to do. This is an efficient way for me to get this product done. So I could understand the allure of them, especially within within a context in which writing is treated more as a product to be graded, like a piece of meat, right? Grade A, B, C, D then it is a, a journey of not just expression of self-discovery. So to me, chat GPT also is an indictment of 
pedagogies, which are part of what's called the banking model of education, which is a theory from Paulo Freire. And the banking model, as you might guess, means you're treating students as if they're a bank where you deposit knowledge into them and they spit it out. Well, ChatGPT works perfectly for that. And so again, I think it's an indictment of a system that's not focused much enough on process. So if you are creating authentic assessments, I think the lure to use these replacement technologies is less. Mm -hmm. So I'll give you an example of a way in which I adapted my pedagogy just this semester. This came up and as soon as it, it, it came on my radar in about December, I started playing with it. I put it into my syllabus. And even though I talked with it with students, students inevitably used it. It was easy for me to see. I would say it would just like come up sort of like someone speaking their own dialect and suddenly there's like a British accent. That's what mm -hmm. it would feel like. And then I would, you know, I started to feel like I was in Blade Runner, like every piece of writing I'd have to look at, is this an Android or is it a human? Mm -hmm. And I got to tell you that I don't want to spend the rest of my career doing that. That is exhausting and demoralizing. And it's creating a, a profound sense of distrust between teacher and student. So I said, okay, if this is the new reality, how do I have to adapt to this? And so I started leaning into things that I've done in some of my like creative writing classes, such as the final project for my current freshman English is half their project. It's about a community they belong to that's misunderstood. Half their project is doing research about that community, developing it. And then they need to present it in a multimedia format. So some students made, like I had one student make a beautiful, like doc, eight minute documentary on Tahitian dance. Mm -hmm. I had another student talk about misunderstandings of veganism. I had a student make a comic about being trans. And what was great about it is, is that the students really were proud of it when we presented in class and online. And they still were able to do the academic work of writing and preparation, but then presented in a way that really spoke to where they're at. Mm -hmm. And you could tell that there was no incentive to use ChatGPT because they really wanted to create this thing that they were proud of. So I think we have to, like all technologies, I think on the level of teacher, collectively get together and figure out how it works for us and how it doesn't. Mm -hmm. But I would say on a much larger level, I, we, I would say we really need guidance and regulation for educators to understand this, but I don't see that forthcoming. So in the short term, educators, I think, are going to be needing to really work together to figure out how to deal with this. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer. Um, I want to ask you about the class uh, where this matrix comment that we discussed before the break uh, came up. In your book, it is a discussion that's part of a class called The End of the World as We Know It, the Literature of the Apocalypse. Um, and as a book nerd, I just want to know, is this a real class? And if so, what books are covered in it? So this, this unit is actually uh, part of a larger class. Uh, science fiction and fantasy. And th this unit is a reference to the you know famous R.E.M. song. Mm -hmm. And I probably, you know, I wasn't thinking about COVID as being the end of the world. I didn't know there'd be this worldwide sort of apocalypse. I think probably for me, I've always been interested in disaster literature. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, going through cancer makes you maybe more interested in it. <laughs> and so the stories I picked out were all stories about the end of the world. So we read Octavia Butler, the amazing science fiction fantasy writer. 
a her story speech sounds about a virus or illness that kills almost everyone on the planet. And the people that are left have brain damage and they can't talk or communicate. I referenced that in the book. We also read The Machine Stops, written in 1909 by E.M. Forrester. Yes, the same one that wrote Passage to India. And it imagines a future in which everyone is in their own little chamber or cell, and they all have television-like screens and talk to each other like it's Skype. And this was, again, written in 1909. Mm -hmm. And nobody can leave their cell because they believe the air outside to be toxic. And the whole system is run basically by an AI. And it just is mind blowing. And so when I teach, it's almost like a, it's like 25 pages. It's kind of a long short story. It's mm -hmm. in the public domain. So anybody can read it. If you just Google the machine stops, it's worth it. Uh, and the students are just shocked. Like the student Jamila in, in the story is like, how did this person write this in 1909? Mm -hmm. And what was interesting is, you know, I we continued that class on Zoom, the science fiction fantasy class, and I was in my teaching bunker, which is my garage that we converted into you know, a teaching space. My wife teaches high school as well, so we both shared the space at different points in the day. Mm -hmm. And I remember joking one day, all of us on our little cameras in our shut-in things, I'm like, oh, this is just like the machine stops. Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. And all the screens were black and there was no laughing. And I said, no, oh, I guess that one hit a little bit too close to home. I said that too soon, huh? Mm. So it, there was this profound irony that I was teaching about disaster as disaster actually occurred. Yeah, absolutely. And um, listeners, the machine stops, of course. Um, most recently, I believe, an inspiration for Hugh Howey's Wool series, one of the most uh, remarkable um, self-publishing success stories of the last uh, couple of decades, which is now an Apple TV series called Silo. Um, I, I love the Wool series. I just want to say that is one of my, I have it you can't you can't you're you're on a podcast you can't see it but i've got wool behind me in my yeah. big shelf of science fiction books fantastic i can't wait to watch it i agree yeah it's very very good um well adam our time is running short here uh but i wanted to ask you um i have attended and worked for a couple of football and basketball programs masquerading as public universities. Um, and you say about education during the pandemic that uh, free market technocrats see this as an opportunity to accelerate their agenda agenda to monetize public education. Uh, my question is, when has this agenda ever been de-emphasized or slowed down? I don't feel like it has been in my lifetime. Um, what, in your opinion, is the state of education pertaining to this passage in 2023? Yeah, so I, I think, yes, this has been the trend for a very long time. It's accelerated the trend. So the reason I wrote this book is I see two trend lines happening at once. One is education being more and more privatized and technology becoming the middle person between the student and the teacher. And at this point, all of these Silicon Valley technologies, and I live right near Silicon Valley, I have good friends that work for their companies, there are so many apps that are now between me and my students that connect us than before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. And these are for-profit companies that are leveraging, to use that word, more and more of that space. That is one trend line that has accelerated. Naomi Klein wrote about this early in the pandemic in a fantastic essay called The Screen New Deal. 
And this is a version of disaster capitalism curriculum, uh, disaster capitalism, which she wrote about in the shock doctrine. Um, that's one trend line. The other trend line, which my book is attempting to push us into, is the ways in which we can use this crisis to deconstruct these systems and have the decisions about education be more in the hands of students and teachers, the people that are closest to the classroom to make authentic assessments, not standardized assessments. Now, this may include or incorporate technologies from Silicon Valley, like some of my students' projects used YouTube or used other platforms to make it. But the question is, how can we make sure that our schools are a place where the students are using this technology as a tool and that they are not a tool for Silicon Valley? Hmm. I think that's the fundamental point we're at. And I think media literacy is key. And my hope with this book is that it makes teachers and students and other folks more aware that these technologies are not agnostic. Hmm. They have particular ide ideologies embedded within them. And for us to slow down and stop and think about how do we integrate chat GPT? How do we integrate all these technologies in a mindful and thoughtful way that increases humanity and connection and belonging and doesn't create more remoteness? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that answer, Adam. And thank you for writing this wonderful book. It is on a topic that has been at the forefront of many minds. Um, and if it hasn't been on your mind, listener, maybe this will open you up to think about it. I've been speaking with Adam Bessie, author of Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey, which is published by our friends at Seven Stories Press and the Censored Press. Adam, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, everybody. Once again, I would like to thank Adam Bessie for joining me. Copies of Going Remote, A Teacher's Journey can be purchased at www.explorebooksellers.com with free shipping for members of Explore More Plus. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been...